With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Hey, thanks for tuning into this episode. I have a quick announcement before we get started. I have a new book out, and it's totally free for my listeners. And you know what? I'm not even publishing this book on Amazon. I just think this is really valuable. I want you guys to read it and I want to give it to you. It's called The Side Hustle Bible. I wrote this book because the economy is changing. You need side hustles to break the barriers of corporate America and live the life of freedom that we all want to live, to choose yourself. I love the idea of trying lots of things to make money and seeing what works and what doesn't. And this book is a collection of proven opportunities, 177 to be exact, to turn your hobby or existing skills into an entirely new source of income. That's why I called it the Side Hustle Bible. All you have to do is go to www.jamesfreebooks.com. That's www.jamesfreebooks.com. Each method has the potential to move you closer to that new car, new house, or vacation. These strategies are tested and proven but don't take my word for it. You will see in the chapters, go to jamesfreebooks.com to see how others have created a profitable side hustle with this free book. All these people took action on just one of the ideas in this book. I'm excited about what this book can do for people. I hope you let me know what it does for you. I love to hear results. Claim your free copy of the Side Hustle Bible today before they're gone. The first step is grabbing your free copy by going to www.jamesfreebooks.com. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. Look how hard it is to change fields. The hardest sell is how do you convince somebody that you're not what you've been for you know decades or that you have more to offer. So I came in through sort of the side entrance. Which I think is a very good technique. I think people underestimate the back door, the side entrance. So one of the things I learned about what makes news and what makes people care is that if you're doing something really well, there's no news story there. But if you do it a different way, that's immediately gets people's attention. And they say, oh, a new thing. Finally, there's a new thing. Let's talk about the new thing. So Scott Adams, Creative Dilbert, I think this is the third time you're on my podcast. I feel honored. This is and this is the first time we're meeting in person also. I know, this will be a completely different experience. The first time you were literally in a closet. I was in a closet, yes. Yeah. The, yeah. An actual closet, not a figurative one. Right, I made I made a closet like my soundproof room because I was living in a place where a train was always going by. But you had the sense, let's let's do it on video. You're one of the first podcasts where even though I was in the closet, we did it on video so we could kind of get those visual cues face to face. But now we're in person. We'll get we'll get all of them. Yeah. So so obviously people know you. You created Dilbert. It's the would you say it's the most popular syndicated cartoon right now? 
in, in a dying industry? Well, <laughs> newspapers. It might be. I, th- I think Garfield still might be in as many or more newspapers. And then popularity is hard to measure. Is it the is it the one that sells the most calendars or the ones that you know? It's hard to measure. I feel when I worked in a corporate environment, Dilbert was the strip that was always taped to people's cubicles the most. I will claim that as a comic strip, it's the most popular for an adult audience. Right? Yeah, because if you if you go for you know Garfield is mostly for the younger set, um, and Peanuts was as well. Eh, Peanuts was a little more universal, but that's Doonesbury. Yeah, those are uh, Doonesbury never was as big as Dilbert. Um, it was as famous, but it wasn't as big in newspapers. And um, so, but but really, first off, we're here to talk about your book that just came out, Win Bigly, Persuasion in a World Where Facts Don't Matter. Your point throughout the book is that there is this two-dimensional world of people who are arguing all over the media and social media where it's like, no, this is the fact. No, this is the fact. But your whole thing is facts don't matter. You can't convince anybody of anything really using rational reasoning. That's the 2D world. And then the 3D world is the world where persuaders live that actually understand how to convince either one-on-one or large numbers of people to support their cause. And what's created some infamy for you, I would say more infamy than fame in a weird way, but you predicted Trump's election almost the day he announced his candidacy. So he had had 18 opponents for the Republican nomination, and then he still had the general election to go. And at that point already, you were saying, Trump is a master persuader. You had taken uh, hypnotism lessons and considered yourself a very good persuader. And you said, this is the only candidate I see using master persuasion skills. And so you, on that basis alone, you predicted Trump's eventual win. I predicted that he was, as I like to say, bringing a flamethrower to a stick fight, and the and the sticks didn't see it coming because he had he had a set of tools that were uh, insanely impressive, but also a little bit invisible, which was the fun part. Because if you look at his talent stack, as I as I like to say, the number of things he can do really well, but not the best in the world, not even better than people who he's running against. You know, you could say, well, you know, he's He's not the smartest person in the race, but he's really smart. Right. You know, he's, he's not the best public speaker, but he's really good. He's not the funniest person you've ever met, but he's really funny. You know, He's not the best, maybe he might not be the best negotiator you've ever met, but he certainly knows how to negotiate. And you can just keep going down the line, and he's sort of a A minus, B plus, or, or A, and this whole range of things from reality TV to business uh, and he he brought the whole package, and I didn't see anybody who who I thought could com- could compete with him. Well, there, there's two directions I want to go on the talent stack issue, and we talked about talent stack on our last podcast, but I just want to summarize it, and I want to summarize it in the form of you with Dilbert. Just basically, it's a combination of skills where you might not be the best, but you're pretty good. But the combination of them makes you the best in the world at the intersection, right. roughly. Right. So in the case of cartooning. Um, nobody would call me a great artist, but I can draw a picture that you you know what it's supposed to be. Um, I'm not certainly not the best writer. I'm not the funniest person even in this room. <laughs> uh, I doubt that. I don't know about that. Uh, uh, but there are very few people who have all those three skills, plus have some business experience, um, can write short sentences that people you know want to read. So there's probably 
there might be about a dozen different micro skills that, that come together to make Dilbert work. And if you took one or two of them out, it, it would all fall apart. I love the phrase micro skills because I think people look at peak performers from afar and say, oh, Tiger Woods is a great golfer or Michael Jordan was a great basketball player or Scott Adams is a great cartoonist. But really, there's no meta skill called basketball. It's a thousand, or not a thousand, but it's like 20 to 100 micro skills that are kind of exclusive of each other. You know, like Michael Jordan had to be good at shooting hoops from a certain distance. And and he also had to be good at running around the basketball court and avoiding other people. It's two completely different skills from each other. We had to be the best in the world at both to be the best in the world at the intersection. Yeah, and at that level, he had to make sure there were no holes. So he had to have a game with no holes. Michael Jordan's probably one of the most complete athletes uh, we've ever seen. But I wonder if this is like, would you say this is like a shortcut on the 10,000-hour rule? And even Anders Ericsson says this is not necessarily a fixed rule. But, you know, a lot of people say you have to do a certain number of time to be the best at something. But I feel like using the talent stack appropriately, you could, be, you could shortcut. I always think of it not so much as shortcut, but as another strategy. Mm-hmm. So if you were born with the talent to be the best piano player, the best golfer in the world, you probably get noticed really early. You know, you're five years old and somebody's already saying, did you see that? Did you see what that five-year-old just did? Give him a golf club right now. Uh, but if you're not one of those, if you're not obviously just a prodigy with, with some, you know, let's say, hand-eye coordination or your musical skill or something, the other way for normal people who, who just are hardworking and pretty good and you know, willing to put in the effort is to build a stack of talents that other people don't have and one that has a commercial value. I think your book has so much more value just on a personal level. Like I'm reading this book to figure out how I could be more persuasive in my life, whether it's through business or relationships or, you know, other activities I'm trying to master. So, I mean, this is a book about how to really kind of take control of a situation so that you move up to the 3D world and so you can see the 2D world for what it is and then what you what directions you should take in the 3D world whether you're selling a business, getting good at a new skill like a stand-up comedy which I'm I'm trying to get good at or I don't know winning an election or selling a customer. Yeah, let me give you an example just with the title of the book. So a lot of people saw the title and they said win bigly. No, Trump doesn't say bigly. He says big league. He just says it quickly and it sounds like bigly. And other people say, no, I looked it up in the dictionary. There's a word, bigly. It's just not often used. And what I say is, you both just remember the name of my book. All right. So that was all I was trying to get. So I, I injected a little bit of wrongness into the title intentionally so that the people who were you know, arguing the details and the rightness and the wrongness of it would go away remembering it. And so that's that's the 3D world, I call it. And I think, I mean, part of your point is that Trump did this quite a bit during his campaign. Sometimes he would take extreme points of view, often making statements that he may or may not have known were inaccurate, just to kind of now be in, now everyone's debating, oh, that was true, that wasn't true. But what they're really talking about all along is Trump. It's like you say, he he drew all the oxygen out of the room from the other candidates yeah. by making these wildly inaccurate statements. Again, he may or may not have known them to be inaccurate. It doesn't even matter, because like you say, facts don't matter. His goal at that point was if something was on TV, it wanted to be him. <laughs> yeah, and 
you know, I was saying early on in the process that the facts wouldn't matter to decisions. Obviously, a fact matters. If you walk off a cliff, you die. All right, so so outcomes matter. But when I was watching now President Trump uh, as a candidate, just making people crazy with his factual inaccuracies, uh, I think PolitiFact had just page after page of this tweet is not accurate, this tweet is not accurate. But there was one thing that they all had in common, not just that they all got your attention because they were inaccurate in many cases, but because all the energy is sucked toward him and he's, he's got your attention and it's a little bit wrong, but you look back and it never mattered and all of, all of his wrongness was in the right direction. So in other words, the things that he said were inaccurate still were a sale for the thing he wanted, which was generally good for the country, if you were of that, that you know, the conservative mind, I guess. You would see him using that uh, on really every topic. Uh, people would argue about the specific detail of what he said, but the direction of what he was trying to promote was a lot more compatible. People would say, yeah, you know, maybe the, maybe the, uh, the gun deaths in Chicago are not as bad as he's saying. Maybe people are not being gunned down every time they walk outside with their baby carriage. But it's really bad, and something needs to be done about all the violence. I can't think of an example where he said something that was inaccurate, and also he was trying to persuade in, in, a, in a bad direction. You say in many cases, he stakes out the claim at the extreme and then is later able to back off to appear to be more centrist. But the direction there was the same that he still believes. And it's enough to say half the country is going to say he's ridiculous. Half is going to get afraid of border patrol and he stays in the news. Yeah. If you look at how much, um, how much, I would say discipline, it took for him not to clarify every time he talked about his wall that it really would have to be a patchwork of solutions based on the terrain and, you know, some things would be first and, you know, you, you don't really need it in these parts. And he did say that, I think, at least once during the campaign. But he very wisely kept with, it's just going to be a wall, just a wall, because it's simple, it's visual, he repeated it. I mean, these are like simple, the... Simple, visual, he and, repeated it over and over. Yeah. And and again, the error of it, when people said, it can't possibly be a full wall all the way, you're not going to do that. They were still talking about him building the wall. He was making them think past the sale. You know, they, they'd already decided that this was an important question. They were spending their time on it. They were debating it. And, you know, before the election, I never even heard this issue. Did he create the issue or did he pull for the issue? That was a little unclear to me. Even in, in the book, you're sort of debating this. Well, immigration was an issue with a lot of his supporters. And one of the things that he was good at, and I guess you, you could say this is part of his talent stack, is that he did figure out what people cared about, which is really, really hard. Because if it were easy, more people would do it. You know, Hillary Clinton's policies were sort of lawyerly and, you know, they, they probably made sense and maybe they added up and, you know, they were compatible with her base and stuff. But they, they didn't have any emotional content. They just sort of laid there. And if you think back, you know, it wasn't that long ago, but try to think of anything that was one of her policies. And it's hard. Uh, well, but- I mean, you talk uh, in the book about, maybe it was almost a last-ditch effort for her, but her wanting to raise estate taxes. But what I really remember with her is two things. Um, the I'm with her slogan, which you compare against make America great again. And um, 
Like you, you had this theory that he was going to somehow create a situation where it, it would seem as if he's running unopposed, which is what happened. But, but this is all the weeds of the election and we'll get to all of them. I wanted to kind of go over, you have, um, when you started getting involved in hypnosis, you have this list of like hypnosis superpowers, which I guess anytime we sort of try something like hypnosis or anything, the first thing we think of is, what am I going to get out of this? What, what special thing that nobody else has? And, and maybe it kind of stemmed from some insecurity. Like your, your second thing here, you have lie detection and romance. So is your first two things as hypnosis superpowers? Did you, were you worried at that time that people were lying to you and that you weren't getting enough romance? And so that's why you signed up for a hypnosis course? Uh, uh, I signed up for a hypnosis because um, I was deeply influenced by my mother. She had uh, an experience with a hypnotist. Um, my family doctor was a hypnotist as well and hypnotized her to give birth to my little sister. And my mother's version of it, and again, I, you know, I don't know how accurate it was, but this is the story she told, that she was hypnotized to give birth and she remembers the whole thing, but felt no pain and used no, no painkillers. Now, who knows if that's completely true? Because it could be placebo effect. Well, that would be hypnosis essentially, right. because that uh, the placebo had been applied in this case; it wasn't accidental. I, I feel like right there, you just used a hypnosis technique against me. <laughs> I feel like you did the um, you win either way. Either either she was hypnotized, so actually she felt no pain, or if it was placebo effect, okay, that's hypnosis too. <laughs> well, you know, the placebo effect is, you know, your mind controlling your body, and that's what the hypnotist was trying to do. So in this specific case, I'm not sure there's a distinction. Yeah, so, so, so that influenced you, obviously, um, but there must have been something more. It wasn't like you were giving birth. You must have had some other issues in life that you said, you know what, hypnosis is going to make these issues better for me. It was really part of uh, building my talent stack. I, um, I also majored in economics in college, and it has a lot more to do with hypnosis than you think. Because economics, you know, when you take the math out, is about why do people do what they're doing? Like, you know, what, what are their incentives? What are, what's their rational decision-making? And you fairly quickly learn that people are just not rational. And, and so I'm entering this confusing world as a young man, and I'm trying to figure it out. Because I think the better the better I understand my world, the more effective I'll be to get whatever I want. And so I wanted to understand the irrational part of of people, and hypnosis seemed like a you know a good pathway to that. So I didn't know at the time how powerful it would be in terms of my worldview. So what it what it didn't do is give me powers to hypnotize people on the spot. You know, I suppose I could if I wanted to, but that really wasn't why I took it. Um, what it did give me was a completely different um, view of how humans operate. And the specific thing was, before taking hypnosis, I thought, well, people are rational most of the time, it seems to me. I feel like I'm rational most of the time. But every once in a while, you get a little crazy. You know, Maybe 10% of the time, you're emotional and you get a little crazy. The hypnotist turns it around and says, 90% of the time, you just think you're being rational, but you're making an irrational decision and you're rationalizing it after the fact. Now, if you think that's sort of just a philosophical you know, little distinction that's just sort of fun but has no impact on the real world, try to figure out anything that's happening in the world with the people are rational model and then compare it to the people are not rational they're just rationalizing and see which one explains their world better. Well, what, what would be a great example where 
it uh, really seems like people are rational. Well, 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 let me give you the the perfect distinction. In a rational world, the better candidate should get eighty percent of the vote, right? But it's always about fifty-fifty, you know, running for president anyway, because people just say, "Hey, my party is this party. That's their candidate. Everything he says, everything she says, is you know, genius." Uh, and everything the other side says is a lie, and in their hearts they're they're horrible people. I don't know why they say say such things. And if you look at uh, to just today, I had a long extended Twitter conversation with someone whose observation of the same set of facts was completely different from mine, and we were looking at the same stuff and concluding completely different things. Now, before taking hypnosis, I would have said this this gentleman is just lying to me. He knows I'm right, you know. Or, or I'd, I'd think we're looking at this the wrong facts. But in, in this case, we were actually literally looking at the same set of facts. And I would think, well, maybe he's dumb. Like this is the only way I, you know, in the 2D world where people are rational, the only way you could explain an interaction like I had today with such a disagreement from the same set of facts is one of us is dumb or lying or or we're, we're broken in our souls, right? And it turns out like, that's very poetic, actually, to describe a <laughs> rational behavior. We're broken in our souls. Yeah, that, but but there's got to be some rational reason why we don't see the same situation the same way. The hypnotist looks at it and says, "Oh, you're both just hallucinating. You're probably both wrong. You know, the the, the truth may be somewhere else. It might be in the middle, but your certainty has nothing to do with reality." Well, you, it's interesting because let's take like uh, as outside the realm of politics, although it's related the realm of religion, it's sort of like what stories did you grow up listening to? So your parents, your teachers, your spiritual leaders might have told you all about uh, Catholicism or they might have told you all about Hinduism or they might have told you all about Judaism. So you grow up from like age of one on thinking these things and then that kind of... Um, you know, sort of more storytelling sort of morphs into the facts that you're willing to to work with. You know, all you need to know about religion is that people almost always adopt the religion that they were born into. You know, some people change. And same thing with political party. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, that alone tells you that there's not a, a rational decision making happening because they've all they think they're all making rational decisions. You you could ask anybody at any religion, and they'll tell you. Oh yeah, I looked at those other ones, and they must just be wrong. I, you know, this one's the smart one. Yeah, and so it seems like what a persuader does, the three D world, is sort of understands that and figures out how to. And you describe like all the different techniques, but figures out how to use that to persuade. So let's say you believe sinning will make you go to hell. So in the two D world. Uh, you know, everybody's trying to rationalize what's a sin and what's not. In the 3D world, you're trying to persuade somebody. You would you would sort of make an analogy or an associate some activity with sinning. Well, I would I would use fear in that case. Fear, so right? If you if you sin, you go to the bad place, and if you don't, you go to the good place forever. It's forever. It's the worst fear you could have, suffering forever. So yeah, fear is um, usually the top. Persuasive, persuasive um, technique, but but you have to kind of take an activity that you want to persuade about. Like let's say you're in a business meeting, you can't automatically say if you don't buy my company, you're going to hell. You have to kind of 
sort of step them there using some of your other techniques, like let's say analogies or association or whatever, you know, I don't know how you would do it. Like, how would you think about it if you were trying to sell a company? And I'm I'm not necessarily saying you have to convince them of their sinning, but it seems like that's such a persuasive idea. Going to hell is so scary. Well, you know, every situation is different, but in general, you're trying to create the biggest contrast um, between the bad choice you don't want them to make and the good choice. And if you're doing it well, you're being very visual about both the good choice and the bad choice. The bad choice should be just flat out scary. You know, you want it to be scary and visual. Uh, ideally, maybe it's related to some fear they've already had, something that they you know, have a real experience with, so they, they conflate the, that fear that they've had with the, this future thing that they want to avoid. And then on the, the plus side, where you want them to, to choose, it's all goodness and light and optimism. And you, you also want to play to people's uh, aspirations. You know, who do you want to be? This is sort of the the Jesus method, right? So Jesus wasn't about, hey, be like this or I'll or I'll give you a penalty. He was more about, you know, be this better person. You know, come to the high ground. You know, be be uh, be the best that a human can be. Watch my example. So aspirations are very uh, very powerful on the pro side, and fear works really well on the other side. So let, let's just give an, uh, a random example. Well, it's not totally random. Let's say you were. You know, you've built this organization around Dilbert, right? So let's say, I mean, this Dilbert's so uniquely tied to you that it would it would be hard for you to sell that company, Dilbert Inc. But let's say you were going to try to, um, and you're in a room full of people at a media company. What would be a way you might use persuasion techniques to sell Dilbert Inc.? Assuming, by the way, that you would have to remain involved. So that so we'll take that that problem off the table. I would first uh, learn something about the people I was selling to, and I'd find something they cared about. Now, if I found somebody who was the decision maker who said, "I've got this lifelong love of comics, and you know, I've been following comics forever," you probably have already made the sale. You know, there may be some haggling on price, but the person came into the meeting, you know, wanting to buy. Um, if they came in saying, "You know, I'm not into comics too much, but I heard this might be a good economic opportunity." Just make the meeting quick. You're not selling anything in that meeting. Really? So you can't you can't persuade them economically. Like your media organization uh, might go down in flames uh, if. I think most people walk into a room with a decision made. Now that's not to say that you can't persuade people, but if you look at um, you know the Trump example, the country was going to be somewhat split down the middle and people weren't going to move no matter what. So the whole game was 18 months to move 2% of the country. And he had the tools to do that. So, you know, when you go into this business meeting, it's sort of the same situation. You'd have to count on most people can't be moved and there's nothing you can do about it, especially in the limited time, and especially in an artificial setting where you don't have you know, the ability to establish, you know, any kind of influence over them before they get there. So, so like in a small group of people, um, where, where again, like they might've already half might have a decision, half might have another decision. Um, and you don't have that much and you're limited in time, uh, persuasion techniques, this might be the one area where persuasion techniques don't really work as well. Yeah. The, the time is the big determinant. Um, well, it's probably one of the biggest factors in persuasion. You know, there's the skill of the persuader, and then there's how much time do you have? If you give me infinite time, I can convince you of anything, right? 
I don't even think there's any limit to that. You know, it sounds like a crazy absolute when I say that, but it's it's sort of the uh, you know the Stockholm syndrome situation mm-hmm. where you know the captive starts to side with the the people who, who captured the person, you know, which seems like the least likely thing that could ever happen. But they have lots of time. You know, you check back in two years, and suddenly the 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 prisoners are thinking that they're the guards. You know, if that's what the persuasion was for. In an election, though, it's like you said, you only have to really persuade. I mean, if you look at every election in history, it's usually won by two or three percent of the popular vote, electoral vote, or whatever. So you only have to be be able to sway, let's say, or be confident that you could sway five percent of the population, and you're going to win. And persuasion techniques work great there. Or I feel you're also saying, and in this book, you 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 say, I think one-on-one persuasion works very well. Yeah, it has a lot to do with uh, picking the target, right? There are some people who just won't be persuaded. There's just nothing you can do. But if you've you've got the right person and they're they're close to on the fence, or the most important thing is, do they have any objection to what you're selling? To, selling. If they have no objection and you've got a little time, then your odds are pretty good. But you could. There's even techniques if they have a uh uh an an objection. There's what you later call the fake because. So. Uh, like like Hillary kept trying to say Trump's like Hitler, and your point was Trump's not like Hitler because he's a master persuader. <laughs> so you have to have like a uh, kind of a a valid because, but you sort of switch the discussion. Yeah, the the because um, this that idea comes from uh, Robert Cialdini's book Influence, in which they did a study and they got people to cooperate just by saying because. And it didn't matter what came after because, which was you know the the finding, that just the word because made people think, well, there's a reason here somewhere. Okay, um, but I think probably there are just some people who are willing to do whatever they're asked, and some people are not, and that's probably the difference between whether the because worked or not. Yeah, well, I I remember some tweets you did. This is like years ago. You should buy my book because my book is on is for sale. <laughs> Yeah, I was I was doing that because uh, my readers were sort of uh, they knew about the the because method, so I was using it on them with sort of a wink, and uh, you know I did it over and over again so they could see the different forms of it and how ridiculous they could be. It didn't matter what came after because, but then it became sort of a running joke, right? And then the joke was the sale more than the because. Again, before the persuasion, we start with you going to hypnosis class decades ago to learn these basic skills, and then. Throughout the book, by the way, you do say you're a trained hypnotist because you're you're using repetition and social proof to establish your credibility. But there's another technique that you use throughout the book, and I've also seen this in your videos. You always repeatedly say, "A scientist, if a scientist disagrees with me, listen to the scientist." Or when you did that video on blockchain, on Bitcoin and blockchain, you know, which I saw recently, um, you you say. Hey, I'm no expert on this, but here's I'm going to explain it. But if somebody else is differently, listen to them. You have this kind of self-deprecating way of both couching yourself as an expert, but then basically saying, "Ah, but if a bigger, a higher expert, ambiguous, you know, not named, says something different, then listen to them." There's actually um, more technique in that than than it seems. It's it's actually pacing the the audience. So if I anticipate that that's what the audience is going to be thinking, I say it first. And if you can say what people are thinking before they've said it, you just say it while it's in their head, it's very powerful. It bonds you to them and they go, oh, okay, we're th- we two people think alike. 
And then if you get them thinking alike enough, then you can lead them. So uh, they'll easily go where someone who thinks like them is going, but they won't go where somebody's completely different, their enemy. You know, if that person wants them to go somewhere, they're just automatically resistant. So for example, in the, in the, uh, the Periscope uh, streaming video in which I talked about uh, blockchain, nobody's going to turn on a cartoonist, hypnotist, uh, Periscope about blockchain and think, well, here's the expert. So right off, every single person is thinking, what do you have to offer? And so I answer that question first. It's like, I, my, my knowledge is about a two, but most of the people signing in were at a zero. <laughs> so and, I, I was actually an easy, an easy uh, you know, on-ramp. And, and you know, it's also an interesting filter in that for people, after you say that, some people, if, if we lived in the 2D world, people would say, okay, well, I'm turning this video off and I'm turning on the video of the scientist who knows everything about blockchain. But if people continue watching, they've now cognitive dissonance takes place. Well, I've continued to watch after he's already said he might not be the world's greatest expert and I'm watching for a reason, so I must trust that he's an expert on this. Yeah, and there's also a, a benefit to underselling. So, in other words, if you if I say, well, I don't know too much about this this material, but then I prove otherwise because I, I do a you know a presentation that does show some knowledge, people are going to be talking themselves into, well, this guy knows a lot more than he's letting on. So you you let people come to their own conclusion that maybe you're better than you've said, because uh, that works way better than saying I'm pretty awesome. Let me show you, and then people just click off. Because they, they want to reflexively, you know, they, they want to prove you wrong. So they're going to be listening to prove you wrong. I feel like this is similar to the Ben Franklin technique where he had an enemy in the Pennsylvania uh, legislature and he figured, how can I get this guy on my side? So he didn't try to convince the guy. He basically said, can I borrow a book from you? He knew the guy had a big book collection. He said, can I borrow this one particular book from you? The guy lent him the book. A week later, Benjamin Franklin returned it. And then the guy was always his friend after that. Because his mind thinks to himself, oh, if I'm the type of person who will lend Benjamin Franklin a book, I must like him. Yeah, if you can get somebody to do you a small favor, they're more likely to do you a larger one. Um, and if the small one is just sort of trivial, it's like, yeah, take the book, bring it back. Um, that does set somebody up to think, well, we're, we are two people who have you know, a history now. We've done a transaction. It was good. You know, it worked out for both of us. So yeah, that can go a long way. It's interesting. I had on uh, the podcast recently the two women who wrote the book, The Rules. Remember that book, The Rules, about yeah, dating? Right. And they say the woman... Um, particularly on the first date or two, should not travel to where the man lives. Like, let's say a, a woman lives in Brooklyn and the man lives in Manhattan. The woman should not travel to Manhattan because now she's done a favor for the man. The man has done nothing yet for her, and so it skews the whole balance of power in in, in this. Well, the way I would put that is, um, they're they're trying to define their value, and you know, we all have in our heads. Okay, if if I go to your office, you must be the important one because otherwise you would have come to my office, you know. So and in any context, we have this sense of who's the important one based on, you know, who who's uh, you know, who's meeting you halfway, who's going more than halfway and that sort of thing. So that that's how I would see that situation.
Okay, but I want to I want to get to again to these hypnosis superpowers, and then we'll get into the election. You talk about lie detection as your first thing, and uh, uh, what would be? I mean, I always think with lie detection, if I ask someone a question directly and they don't quite answer it, they sort of answer it, but they don't quite answer it, it means they're lying. So if I if I if I say to you, um, where were you last night? And you say, oh, I was out with my friends. You didn't actually answer the question, where were you? So I assume there's some lie somewhere in there. Well, yeah. I mean, none of this is 100% reliable, right? But you you would be right to have a little flag go off in your head to say, oh, that was a little bit of avoidance. But uh, I'll give you the uh, the most classic example of this is if you say to somebody, did you murder Bob, you know, Tuesday? The person who's innocent says, what the hell are you talking about? Of course I did not murder Bob. That's crazy. Then they might ask you, where do you do you even hear that? Yeah, or why would you think that? The liar says, where did you hear that? Because they need to know what you know to craft their lie. Because they, you know, if you if you have them, if they're just dead to rights, then they're going to have to retreat to, well, you know, he had it coming or something. But if they don't know anything and they're just guessing, then the liar is going to say, no, I wasn't there. So, so as soon as somebody says, how did you know that? Why are you saying that? Without denying it first, that, that's a, just a huge red flag. Well, what's another lie detection thing? So within the, uh, the hypnosis realm, <clears throat> one of the skills you learn is uh, looking at very small changes in a person. Because in the hypnosis context, you're looking at it to see if what you're doing is relaxing them. But you become very observant to small changes. So if you see anything that looks out of place... Uh, that should be a flag. A classic example is that if somebody smiles with their mouth, but their eyes don't look smiley, Mm. that's a fake smile, and there may be some some, uh, intent to deceive you there, even if it's just trying to sell you something and acting smiley. Um, So if you see anything that's incongruent, that just doesn't look like the natural thing that somebody would be doing in that specific situation, that just raises a flag. I feel like there's a whole book just in that. Well, there is. I, I think other people have written it. And uh, here again would be a, a case where, you know, on a scale of one to ten, I'm, I'm more like the hypnotist is probably a, a solid five to to a a citizen's two compared to, let's say, an FBI or law enforcement you know, professional who just does this all the time, you know, maybe they're 9 and 10. But having a 5 as a skill of detecting lies is pretty powerful. Right, because again, you're adding it to the talent stack of your other persuasion techniques. And again, persuasion, I'll, I'll view it as a meta skill filled with all these micro skills. So lie detection one of them. Now, your next section in this uh, hypnosis superpowers is romance. Obviously, this must have been on your mind when you were, it's on everybody's <laughs> mind anyway when they're young. And you when, when right. I don't know how old you were when you took this hypnosis class, but how has your romance life changed directly because of taking a hypnosis class? Well, first of all, let me put some distance between what I'm talking about and some people know about a book called The Game and you know the, the concept of you know, negging or saying something negative to the woman and then she tries harder, apparently. Um, so I'm not talking about any of that stuff. I'm talking about just general, how do you make anybody like you, whether it's romance or not? And I'll give you just a concrete example. Um, there are lots of people who will walk into a room and start talking about their problems. And in their head, they're just thinking, well, I'm sharing. This is what happened to me today. 
seven bad things happened to me, so they're just talking about it. Now, even if it's your best friend, your best friend is going to be, after a while, just worn down by the negativity and just will want to spend less time with you. Compare that to, let's say you're meeting a new person, you're trying to impress them, it's somebody you'd like to be romantically involved with. Let's say the, the first thing that you said to them was, hey, you know, do you have any nice vacations planned? You know, when, can you recommend a good vacation? I'm thinking of going on one. Their mind will immediately go to their favorite vacation. You know, that you'll take mm. them back to the beach. It was that great time. They'll start laughing and you'll ask them questions. It's, it's something easy to talk about, vacations. You know, everybody can talk about vacations. And suddenly, the only uh, impression they have of you, because you just met, is all these great feelings. Right, so it's there's a subtlety there. Instead of saying, um, instead of being the first thing you say, oh, I had a great, wonderful day today, which would be another way of creating positive emotion, you go one step further, which is, what's a vacation you would recommend? So rather than them thinking just about your great day, they're suddenly thinking of like Santorino or something, like this this thing that viscerally happened to them. Yeah, ultimately no one cares about other people's inner thoughts, <laughs> but they really care about their own. So you, you need to lead them to think about their their own good thoughts. I want to learn more. What's another question I should ask? <laughs> well, um, generally you want to show interest. So uh, here's here's a little superpower trick. If you're chatting someone up and you're trying to think, I can't tell, are they just being friendly because they're a friendly, it's a friendly person, or, or is there genuine like romantic sexual chemistry here? And here's a way you can always tell if they ask you a personal question. Now, I don't know if it works the same way reversing the genders because I've only seen it from my own gender, but you could, if you talk to a woman for, for days and she never asks you, you know, hey, do you have any siblings? Where do you live? Where do you work? There is no interest there. But the moment she says, so, do you have any brothers and sisters? You're done. So, so I see. So this is, this is romance detection, but part of the idea here is that usually people have chemistry within seconds, and then you just, after that, it's just sort of like maneuvering to figure out w what's going on. Yeah, so the biggest skill of romance is identifying somebody who actually likes you. <laughs> uh, it's not convincing somebody who doesn't to like you. That's, that's a tough sale. I'm not even sure that would be ethical. Uh, but I, certainly identifying somebody who already has you know, a, a chemical positive reaction to you is something you could do with hypnosis. And again, that's looking for the, the micro you know, changes in their body. You're looking for, you know, do they touch their hair? Do, you know, are they leaning in? Are they you know, hanging on your words? Most, of you would, most people would recognize those signs, but hypnotists are just a little bit more trained in watching the, the smaller, more subtle parts of those signs. But, but like asking the personal question back, there, boom! You could take you could take the question off the table. Yeah, I, I, a friend recently uh, had asked me for advice. It's like, hey, you know, somebody uh, somebody seems interested, but you know, is, is this real? And I said, well, how often has this person you know engaged with you? And it's like, and it turns out it was a lot. I was like, well, there's your answer. Nobody puts that much energy into something without a genuine interest. So, although even though we're trained to be polite and say, hey, how was your day? You, yeah, the the how is your day stuff means nothing. But if somebody wants to stay there and talk to you and find out how you feel and you know what what's your experience and what you do for a living before this and that person's interested. All right, good to know. Good to know. So um, 
communicating, I mean, that covers a broad spectrum of things, but in general with communicating, you have like some idea in your head you're trying to transmit to somebody else. Uh, what's, what's the hypnosis part there? Well, there are a lot of fields that are related. So uh, after studying hypnosis um, in my corporate life, I got to take a lot of classes for free. You know, the company would pay for all kinds of classes. So anything from, you know, negotiating to listening skills, um, you know, there, there are a whole bunch of like interpersonal types of skills, and they're all part of communicating. So it's a it's a big topic, but the the hypnotist has an advantage in that they can they can tell when the things they're doing are working because that's at least half of the skill of a hypnotist is to identify just by looking that what you're doing is working. You know, is the body responding the way you expect it to? I feel because I've been in a lot of different business deals and transactions. And maybe I'm wrong. I've never taken a hypnosis class. I feel in general, I have a good intuition about that. But maybe I'm just smoking my own crack there. Like, uh, I, I don't think I'm good at anything else. <laughs> but I feel like I'm good at that sort of detection. Um, well, I don't know if everybody thinks they're good. That would be a good study. Does Does everybody think that they're above average at that? Cause, yeah, it's like cause the driving thing. Yeah. Like uh, 9 out of 10 people think they're above average <laughs> drivers. Right. Um, and I think we may have talked about this before, but the Dale Carnegie course teaches you how to be uh, more engaging to other people. And the, 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 sit, the trick summarized is to get them to talk about themselves. So if, if they just talk about themselves for a while and leave and you were a good listener and you, you know, added a little bit, that person will leave thinking, man, I really, I really like that person. You know, and they won't realize that it's because they did all the talking. Well, and you mentioned, and I didn't know this until I read your book, uh, you mentioned that Trump as a kid uh, with his parents would go to Norman Vincent Peale's church, who, you know, right on, I guess it's like on Fifth Avenue and 28th Street, uh, the Marble Collegiate Church. Uh, and he wrote The Power of Positive Thinking. And he, basically taught all these principles and kind of interwove it with, with religion. But I think that's where you feel um, Trump got his initial persuasion skills as a, as a young boy. Yeah, Norman Vincent Peale was uh, accused of being a hypnotist in his time because apparently he was so influential, um, so persuasive, that people thought there's some secret technique here. Now, you notice that um, the power of positive thinking was essentially had to think your way into success. You know, I'm oversimplifying a, a book. But if you look at the things that President Trump, and before that, just Trump, um, did, he was generally imagining this great success in the future. And and it was so engaging, he'd, he'd paint a picture of it, that people would start moving in the direction of the picture he painted. So his his certainty, his clarity... And his optimism are just really attractive traits, and he never backed off on them. I think. I think it's like you say. You 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 praise his consistency even in the face of just nonstop negativity towards him. Like he was able, like the, even just the slogan "Make America Great." It's simple. It's aspirational. Um, I think you know. You mentioned he he or, or I interpret how he, how he mentioned he's speaking a lot personally to people that they can make their lives better as opposed to the saying, I'm with her, which doesn't make anyone's life necessarily better. Yeah, just just compare those two slogans and you, you can see everything about their persuasive talents. So Make America Great Again has, works on every level. First of all, every word in it is is a positive word. Make, you know, it, it speaks to building, creative. It's, it's, like, it's like an American word. I'm going to make something. 
right? You know, great, again, America, all those words are just really powerful. But when you put them together, they even have a percussion that's pretty good. Make America great again. You can almost hear the, you know, the, the drumbeat, make America great again. Is again, uh, I feel like that's slightly negative. Like we're, we're down now. Let's get back to again. But of course, well, there's the callback to Reagan. Well, well, it's a callback, but he also had to create contrast. So he he needed to say that we're not where we need to be. That was important. And, you know, the, these other people have ruined everything. But certainly we can be great again. Now, smart people can argue, what the heck does that mean? And were, were we already greater than we've ever been? Yes. <laughs> I mean, America has never been less great any year than the year before, right. at least as far as I can tell. But he sold that. He sold the idea that we were somehow greater before, which on any objective measure, I think is just false, right? You know, I mean, you could find areas where we're not as great, perhaps. But overall, um, he really had to sell that. And I think the again helped a little bit there. But look at, but look at one of um, the Clinton slogans, I'm with her. Instead of talking about the country and, you know, this all banding together, it seemed like she was talking about maybe we should work for her. Right. Like, I'm with her. And and also the putting the her in it called out that her gender was somehow important to running the country, which a lot of people did not appreciate, even though it was very motivating for people who were, you know, eager to have a, a woman president. And we'll, we'll talk in a, in a little bit about how when her persuasion, when, when she upped her persuasion game and almost, you know, put up a good battle. Well, I had surmised that uh, Robert Cialdini was advising the Clinton campaign. Perhaps he had been with Bernie before because it was only after Bernie dropped down that Clinton got a good persuasion game. And I don't think that was a coincidence. Could have been, but probably not. But when he was asked whether he was consulting uh, through third parties, I heard about this later, I believe his comment was no comment. Now, there's nobody who's not consulting who's going to say no comment. They're going to say, no, I'm not. But that was as close as you could get to a yes for somebody who couldn't say yes in that situation. Given that he would know that, I mean, kind of everybody knows if they say no comment to a question that that means yes. Um, So do you think he just kind of, it was a safe way for him to build his brand without admitting that he was doing this? It might have been the only honest thing to do. Uh, you know, if you think about it, what would be another way to honor, to answer that? Well, no, without, the honest way was to, to, would be to say, no, I'm not, because then he's honoring his agreement with, with her. No, that would just be a lie. Okay. Yeah, I, so I, I don't imagine that he would have been comfortable just lying. I think he needed to just simply not confirm it, and that was as far as he could go. So there was, there was no right answer there once asked. There's one thing that you that you talk in the book that's that's fascinating, and I don't quite know how to do it myself. It seems like it requires a lot of practice. But you mentioned how Trump is constantly doing these linguistic kill shots like uh, uh, and, and, and using, doing them very visually. So like, you know, crooked Hillary or I forgot what he said about Jeb. What was the low, uh, low energy, low energy Jeb, um, tiny root Marco. Yeah, little Marco. <laughs> yeah, little Marco. It's very visual. And then, and then also. Uh, don't, you know, don't forget sloppy Michael Moore. Yeah. Oh, I didn't. I don't remember that one. So oh, that, that's the new one. That's from you know just yesterday or the day before. Yeah. So constructing those seems to be a skill. <laughs> like I don't know. Like, and first off, it's it's usually an insult. So for me thinking about them, I don't usually insult people. So I'm trying to. Oh, is there a positive way to to use these in in persuasion, or is it just always like st- stop talk? Like this person is nothing. He's you know 
you know, tiny Rubio or whatever. Well, so there's a lot of engineering in in those little nicknames, the linguistic kill shots, as I call them. And here's what you see uh, across all of his nicknames, which is why you know it's not an accident. First of all, he picks a word that is uncommon for the context he's using, in this case, politics. So calling somebody low energy or lion, you know, lion with an apostrophe instead of a G. Right. Uh, little, these are things you don't hear. <clears throat> Crooked. You know, it's just not something that a politician says out loud about another. <clears throat> but the second thing that they have going for them is that they call out a physicality or something that you will be reminded of for sure in the future. So um, when he said low energy Jeb, you know, before I heard that, I thought, well, Jeb's this calm, cool, collected executive, exactly who you want in a, an emergency situation. But the moment he said low energy, I called Jeb's, you know, the end of Jeb's uh, campaign, and it turned out it was um, very soon after. But, he, you know, he never, he never improved after that point because every time you saw him after that, compared to, and again, this is the power of contrast, because Trump was running such a high-energy campaign and nobody doubted that, you couldn't look at Jeb the same anymore. But couldn't Jeb say, oh, my God, uh, pumpkin-headed Trump uh, just called me a bad word, you know, Whatever, like, couldn't couldn't people fight? I mean, Trump clearly had physical ways to describe him that would be funny and that would be visual, and we would remember. But but look at the uh, the thing you're remembering. So people called uh, Trump uh, one of the best. I wish I knew who said it. Maybe you know. Uh, called him uh, Cheeto Jesus. Oh no, I don't know that. <laughs> right, which is hilarious. And so your first first impression is, oh, that's pretty good. It's hilarious. It's an insult. But here's the thing: people like Cheetos. People like their Jesus. You put Cheetos and Jesus together, that's not the insult you were hoping for, right? So what, what would have been a kill shot on Trump? That, nobody, that I feel like he would have been an easy target for a kill shot. Well, you know, one of the ones that they tried, at least some operatives tried, was uh, you know, Dangerous Donald yeah. uh, and, and Donald Duck. Those are a few. So the idea behind Donald Duck was that he was ducking on his tax returns and ducking questions and stuff. But Donald Duck is an awesome, like, character that's very popular. Right. So it just wouldn't have worked at all. And then Dangerous Donald has the same problem, uh, which is his supporters like him because he's dangerous. <laughs> or what about like, what about, and, and you talk about this a little in the book, but what about Drumpf, which has this Hitler-esque kind of undertone? Yeah, the, the whole Drumpf thing, um, you never saw the professionals use it. That was really a social media thing. And one of the problems is that just looked racist, right? Mm. You know, making fun of somebody's last name, you know, especially specifically because of the the ethnic background in this in this case, Austrian or whatever it was. Um, it just doesn't feel right. You know, it just feels like something that trolls say on social media, but it could never be a campaign thing. You can also do the linguistic kill shot to commit suicide. So you mentioned like uh, Carly Fiorina and her campaign, and she did this speech about uh, something going wrong in an abortion. So there's this dead baby, and for and then and you predicted, okay, that's it for her, and immediately her campaign died because, as you put it, she has suddenly associated herself with a dead baby. Not a good association. Yeah, and not only is it not a good association, and it's very visual. You, you, yeah, very visual, and you might not even be able to conjure up a worse one. Yeah, like, like you can even say uh, ISIS is cutting off people's heads, which is what the president says. But you're still thinking of adults, right? But when you go dead baby, and I even I even 
you know, hesitate to even say it in the podcast. It's just so horrible. It's the horrible list. But 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 okay. Let's take that comparison though with Trump saying, you know, I ISIS is coming for the Vatican, right? And ISIS cuts off heads. Uh, wasn't Trump doing that a little bit? Like with the the and I agree, it's adult, so it's not as bad as a dead baby. But isn't he starting to associate himself? Yeah. yeah. If if all you talked about was that stuff, it would be pretty grim. And and even if he had good ideas, people would just be worn down by, ah, I can't hear more ISIS terrible things. But the fear part, though, which, as you say, is the strongest persuasion factor, you have to bring up ISIS in an election for fear. With, with the contrast. So as long as he was offering us you know, this Make America Great Again vision where things were wonderful and the economy was zooming and, and ISIS had been defeated, so he was, he was drawing us a picture that was pretty positive. Um, he could mention what's terrible, and then he's created contrast, which is good. But if he lived, you know, and made his brand around the negative stuff, uh, that would have been a mistake. Carly Fiorina really was trying to marry her brand to this topic about abortion, and in so doing, she she made maybe one of the biggest political mistakes I've ever seen, which is, you know, she she oversold that. She she made it too visual, too awful, and didn't have didn't have the contrast to offer. You know, she, she wasn't selling enough positivity. Well, um, and, and this, is, this is connected, but um, you talk about a technique taking the higher ground. And so, and the way I, I interpret that is own what people say about you, like absorb it in and throw it back at them in a positive way. So if someone, um, you know, I don't know, accuses uh, Trump of, you know, being a liar, what would he, what, what would be his way of taking the higher ground? Well, you already saw me do it, so that's the, that's the beauty of it. Um, when we talked about him not passing the fact-checking, I acknowledged that. Right. But I said that if you, you can't find an example where he's not persuading in a direction that at least the people who voted for him think is a good idea. So so like if someone said you're lying about the number of crimes created about immigrants, he could basically turn that around and say I am saying a lot of horrible things being done by immigrants because this is what's happening. It's happened here here here. He could just kind of own it and then I don't know give give you know just keep going along that that thread. Yeah, I mean every example is a little bit different. I probably would have gone to which is why he did. America is the high ground, which is yeah, we'd like um you're right, there's some bad people there are some bad people coming All in. All right, that's exactly used. Yeah, most of them are great people. What we'd like to do is get far more of the the good people because you know the more the better of the good people. Um but we're just trying to filter out the the elements that are not positive for America. And you know, one thing that's interesting in all this is that it's like your point: the facts don't matter. It, it it's sort of like for for Trump all along, the outcome matters. So I think during a lot of the election, people were sort of wondering, well, what if he wins? How is he going to do all of this? And your point is, it doesn't even matter what he said if the direction is right, because he could just pull back on everything, and then suddenly he's. There is a good chance he's going to please everyone. So the Republicans still see him in the direction he's going, and the Democrats are like, "Oh, phew, he's not as bad as we thought." That hasn't quite worked out that way, but that's been his technique. Yeah, the the best example of that is when during the campaign when he was saying he wanted to uh, ship back, you know, ten to fourteen million, you know, undocumented uh, Mexicans living in this country. I heard that and said, "Well, that's not going to happen." 
That's you know his his outrageous first offer, like he always makes an outrageous first offer. What he wants is tighter control on the border, one way or another. But he will give that up. And sure enough, that was the first thing that, that came off the table when he when he got elected, uh, in favor of maybe a little stronger vetting. You know, maybe we don't feel so bad about a wall. You know, as long as we're not shipping people back, maybe the you know maybe uh, everybody can stay and they've got some path to something good. So, so let's say um, I forget I forget what year we're in right now. Actually, so 2020 comes around and people say, "Well, you didn't build a wall. Um, what's he going to say?" Well, he's building the prototypes already, and notice how visual they are. All right, we've we've already seen the uh, the the place where all the different walls are, and in a way, that's that's uh, making us think past the sale too. Because if you're thinking which wall do we pick, you're already thinking wall. So, and he does that all the time. He's always making you think about the choice that's after the decision. I guess that's a good real estate agent technique too, right? They show you a bunch of choices, and they know some of them are bad choices. But as long as they, as long as you're thinking some choice is a bad choice, you're you've opened up the possibility that a choice is going to be made. Well, people who you know hire a real estate agent, they've already sort of decided they want to buy. So you're really just trying to get them to buy something that's, you know, that they can live with and they're happy. And it does help that they see some bad properties first, because then they think their decision is kind of genius by the time they make the decision on the good one, which is more than they wanted to pay. But that's usually what has to happen to get the the deal done. So so let's now say um I want to take it to the personal level. Like, let's say you're in a, a business situation or a romantic situation, and you're you want to kind of uh, say, you know, something big and then pull back later. What would what would be examples of this? Well, you'd have to give me more of a. Okay, comment. let's say you're selling your company, or let's say you're selling a product. Well, um, if you're trying to get a. Uh, price, you simply say this product will you know probably sell a billion units next year. Maybe maybe three billion could be two billion, but I don't know if it'll be this or our other product. Our other product might get to a billion first. I can't tell if this one will be a billion or the other one will be a billion. So if and, making- and this is great anchoring too by just using these large numbers. Right. It kind of puts in their head. And even if you were just joking, and it's like you were obviously just joking or lying. And they all know, and we acknowledge it. It still put, anchors them with those numbers in their head. So I've also given them an aspiration because they they want to you know own this company with all that. And I made them I made them think past the sale. Is it well? Which of the products will be the billion dollar one? You know, which one will make me rich? So there there was you know at least three techniques in there. Huh. And and okay, romantic situation. You're on you're on your first date with somebody. <laughs> um, and let's not get let's not get biological. Yeah. So you're looking for a big opening offer for a first day. That might be a context where that, that's not your best approach. Uh, what if you say, I'd love to get married at some point? Well, people run away if you, if you get too serious too fast. Um, the thing is, you want people to think that they're making the decision on their own. They're not getting talked into it. They're not being manipulated. They're not being coerced. Um, so... If you want to get married, let's say, yeah, I'm not sure there's any good example that works in the, the romantic context because anything that looks like too big of an offer would also look too scary. Okay, let's not make it an offer. What if you said something like, what if you describe to the other person what you're looking for and you make it these like really aspirational things for yourself? 
that you want someone who's this, 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 and this. And even though they might be high, do you think that then they're starting to think, okay, well, I somehow fit into this? Oh, it's it's can be a real mistake to um, say, I want this criteria, this one, this one, in a partner, if you're talking to the person. Because the odds of you hitting at least one that, that doesn't sync up is really high. You know, it could be like, I want this, I want this, and they have to love music. And the person's thinking, well, I was three out of four. See you later. Yeah. You know, that you'll, you'll never be happy with my lack of loving music or whatever it is. I guess so. This is a detection thing. If they, if they say, like, well, yeah, I kind of like all those, um, then that's a good detection thing that they're trying to, they're playing. Well, the first thing you have to realize is that people go in with their criteria and say, I've got these 10 criteria. But they they abandon those criteria so so quickly if they find somebody that they just have the right chemistry for, right? If they just smell right, because you know literally how people smell will make you attracted or not. How they look, you know, you walk in and five seconds into it, you have a pretty good idea if you want to spend the rest of your life with this person. And you know, you probably know people who've had that experience, you know. I, I met so-and-so, and I knew we were getting married. And sure enough, they did. Uh, unfortunately for me, if I just walk down the street in New York, I have it about 20 times, that feeling. <laughs> so that's that's my big problem, which I deal with in therapy all the time. I have all sorts of questions and, and bookmarks, and I just want to make sure. Um, I, I didn't understand this one. Your persuasion tip 15. Studies say humans more easily get addicted to unpredictable rewards. Yeah, so if if uh, I gave you a pellet every time you did something, you would just get sort of bored with it. It's like, eh, pellet, yeah, I like a pellet. And then maybe after a while it'd be you'd think, well, I've had a lot of pellets. But let's say this pellet is something you like. But if you did your task and sometimes you got a pellet, but you couldn't tell why you were and why you were not, that would become instantly addictive. And by the way, there's science behind this. This, this is not my. This is not Scott's theory. It's a fairly well-known phenomenon that the unpredictability is what what makes you keep working for it. It's what makes you gamble. For example, the fact that you don't know when it's going to pay off is very addictive. But but at the same time, I, I always try to figure out. Uh, you know, are these things after the fact theories? Because we just talked about what was great about Trump was his consistency of his sim- simple aspirational message um, and his ability to always take the high ground, to own what he said and take the high ground. And he, and yes, he had certain unpredictability in terms of like always trying to say these outrageous statements that would keep him in the media. It was like he was an expert at balancing them is what you're basically saying. Well, uh, Trump is a perfect example of this because if you talk to any of his supporters, they'll they'll give you some version of this story. I, I like his policies. You know, I like a lot about him. I really supported him. And then he did that thing or he said that thing and I, I, I just he just lost me a little bit there. But then next week, he did some things I liked again. So it was the fact that he wasn't consistently always what they wanted, I think had the perverse effect of making people a little bit more psychologically addicted. Now, I would not recommend that method for a politician. I think it may have worked you know, just by coincidence. That, that certainly was not part of his plan. I, I would not say that was anything he did intentionally. You know, and, and, and I guess also, again, it's related to taking the high ground because if someone says to him, wait, why did you just say that? He could he could then say, yeah, I said it because 
America is, needs to be great again and you know fill in the blanks like like or or uh you know you you kind of gave his first example of this which is Megan Kelly asking him about um you've called you know women you know fat pigs or whatever and he he then said a, a funny and visual statement which is he said only Rosie O'Donnell and that convinced you he was going to be president <laughs> yeah that was the first moment when i i saw something special because that was a trap that almost no one could have gotten out of. I mean, just the question itself was toxic, so it, it shouldn't have mattered how he answered because the question would be the news, right? Oh, he what really? He was accused of all these things. Like, yeah, because the question's using all of those techniques too. It's visual, you know. It's trying to tie him to all these visual images. That is a very sensitive topic in American politics. And he did what I've never seen done before in that context. He made his answer so interesting that you forgot the question. Hmm. And when he said only Rosie O'Donnell, but he also bonded with his audience because you know his, the Republicans were sort of anti-Rosie O'Donnell for pol political reasons. And so he bonded with them. He got a laugh, which is really good bonding. He, he looked clever at that moment and, and he looked outrageous. He got all the attention. And you just forget the question after a while. And then I forget what happened at that point. Was that his total answer? Like, did he then say, give an answer on top of that, or was that just it, his, his total answer? Uh, then he went to the high ground, and he said, you know, there's too much political uh, correctness. And again, every Republican in the audience was saying, yeah, there's way too much political correctness. And guess what? That had nothing to do with the question. <laughs> it was beautiful. It was a high ground, but it wasn't really totally related to you know the, the, the intent of the question. He, he sort of morphed the question into... Well, people say some jokes, and you know they they get a little inappropriate. We shouldn't take that as too much. But that really wasn't the intent of the question. So, so, and on the same page in the book here, there's something I underline, which I really like. This one technique that you do, which I think I'm going to completely steal, which is um, you did or do a video series, Coffee with Scott Adams. So you tie people's morning routine. Everybody has a morning routine where they drink coffee, let's say at eight o'clock. And so now you called this thing Coffee with Scott Adams. So now they're going to watch you while they're drinking coffee. You tied your, you know, whatever it is you want to talk about that day with their morning routine. Yeah, it's more than that because coffee is visual and you also imagine it, you taste it, you smell it, you see it. I mean, and you can almost hear it. You know, you can hear the coffee maker doing his thing. So it gets every every sense involved. And coffee is one of, <clears throat> for those who like it is a, an overwhelmingly positive experience. You know, people have a good feeling about coffee if they drink it at all. And and in in business, could you say there's a similar technique? Which is like, let's say I'm going to call everyone at. Uh, or call my business associates at 8 a.m. Hey, it's coffee with James Altucher. I'm going to just interrupt your morning routine every day. You're going to hear my voice. Well, I mean, that has some other variables going in there, the the, the interrupting part. Oh, because uh, so yours is more passive. They have to tune into you. They have to tune into me. So they, they it's them associating this rather than you forcing yourself on them. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, because the periscopes are uh, never at the set time, so people are always saying, well, why don't you do them at a set time or why don't you warn us? And part of the reason is I want to give them unpredictable rewards. So when I'm watching the Periscope, one of the most common uh, things I'll see is somebody will say, thank goodness I finally got a live one. You know, I finally got it because otherwise they'd watch it on replay. And it makes them feel really good 
that that they got this reward that was completely unpredictable. Yeah, but if you call a coffee with Scott Adams, though, aren't you doing it roughly at the same time every day, or do you just vary by like ten minutes, fifteen minutes here and there? Um, it's just any time in the morning when I feel like it, and then I might do a few in the afternoon, just just because. Huh, and it's the and they, so you combine associating with this routine with the unpredictability. It seems like it's really it's a, it's again one of the, it reminds me again of like swinging a tennis racket where there's like all these things you have to remember that when you're used to it after you've done it a thousand times it becomes easy. It's just you don't even think about it. But at first it's like oh hold your hand like this, hold your knees like this. There's so many things you think of in the head. You do it poorly. Yeah, well, people ask me uh, does does Trump consciously use these methods and my answer is uh, you know first of all I can't get in his head so I don't want to you know uh, pretend I have uh, magic powers to know what he's thinking but I'll use my own example um, once you learn these things they just become the way you communicate you, you don't actually think well now I'm going to do this trick now I'm going to do this trick now I'm going to do this trick you just know what's more what's more uh, you know more persuasive so for example um, I will just sort of reflexively talk in visual language whenever I can, but I don't really think about it. It's just better communication. And and I keep thinking about that, like how do you, like it seems like that's a hard skill. Like you have to it's almost like you have to practice that a lot. Like how do you talk in visual I I don't really think too much in visual language. So what's what's how how would you how would you use this in, in daily life? Well, you would use it just by talking about anything visual. Anytime you wanted people to feel a certain way, you you would give them the the visual image that that brought them there. Like, give me an example when you when you've done it. Um, well, the coffee with Scott Adams thing is is one example. Um, that's the hardest question. Give me an example. Out of a, <laughs> uh, I know, and I I feel like it's it's like I had uh, last week. Uh, Sheila Evans came on, and and she's done. 1700 documentaries and it's sort of like I even regretted it the second I asked her what's your favorite documentary since 1700 documentaries so <laughs> you know it's a stupid question I don't know I just asked it anyway um you know I ask you this though because I'm just trying to think like in my daily life where would I use visual language well so here's a, a small example so one of my cartoon characters is the boss and I I use a hypnosis technique where I don't give him a name I also don't tell you what company Dilbert's working at, and you know I leave a lot for the the reader to fill in. But uh, I usually refer to the boss as the pointy-haired boss, because mm -hmm. you just now think of his two tufts of pointy hair, and uh, that just brings you to that that image and makes you remember him. So he's he's one of the more popular characters, and probably some of that has to do with the fact that he's the pointy-haired boss. So it it's automatically visual. So I guess let's say we're going to a party. With some friends, and then you're talking about it later with your friends. You could just describe everyone visually, and chances are you're the life of the after party because you're they'll remember who everyone who you talked about. Yeah, every story is better with a little visual as long as you you don't bore your audience with. Uh, and the you know, the junipers were in season, you know. And it sounds like it's good not to be so specific, also. Well, you want to leave out details when the details could be um, either a distraction Dividing. or it would um, allow somebody to change their mind. Yeah, so you want to give them just enough and never more. It's very similar to uh, selling past the close. So if you've heard that phrase, so there's an example would be uh, if I'm trying to sell you this uh, bottle of water, 
and you say, all right, I'll buy it. And as we're walking to the cash register for you to purchase it, I say, you know, this is uh, one of the three best bottles of water that you could buy. And then you say, what are the other two? And now I've lost the sale. So you want to give no information after the sale is done. And in persuasion, you, you don't want to add anything that isn't helping you. You know, if, if it's extra, leave it out. Um, you don't mind I go through and, and my bookmarks, right? I, I like how many dog-eared pages you have there. Yes. That's a good sign. So we did the linguistic uh, kill shots. I liked how, uh, like he, when he was being accused of being a racist, you predicted he was going to start uh, taking photos with kissing babies who were of all sorts of different minorities, right. and which he did. Yeah, so um, th this is a perfect example of the, the visual power. So by calling uh, the president a racist, which was really good politics, you know, it was, it was a, a very effective attack, the best thing he could do is to give a visual contradiction to that. And if you're physically touching the people that, um, that people say you must hate, it's hard for the brain to wrap around that he could have these feelings they imagine, which, by the way, I'm sure he does not have, and yet could be so uh, physically affectionate with the very people that you imagine he hates, you know, it's got somehow. So uh, it was strong persuasion to just go out there and kiss some babies and make sure that there were a lot of African-American babies in the, in the bunch. And we were talking earlier how a lot of these persuasion techniques could work well one-on-one. -on -one. A lot of them could work on a mass audience where you only need to sway two or three percent, uh, and you know persuasion techniques will do that. But now Trump is in this weird middle ground, President Trump is in this weird middle ground where he has to persuade a smaller group of people to work with him, which is Congress. And he does seem to have not done that as well as he's done the election. Well, I would agree that he is less successful um, persuading Congress so far. But if you take the example of uh, health care, for example, when, as soon as he acted like a, a standard president where he said, hey, Congress, give me a bill and I'll sign it. I don't even care too much what it is. You know, come up with a good bill and I'll sign it. That failed miserably. There was, there was almost no persuasion technique used there. He was just acting like, hey, I got a job. This is my job. I'll do my job. But now watch, watch what happened after it failed. And by the way, I always wondered if he didn't make it fail intentionally because that would give him flexibility. So by allowing the Republicans to do their most Republican plan, scaring the left to death that this plan might be you know, adopted, he now had the, the right failing publicly while the left is scared to death. It's the perfect setup to find the middle. And what does he do? Hey, Chuck and Nancy, maybe I'll deal with you. If the Republicans can't do it, maybe I'll talk to the Democrats. And by the way, I think he means that because he just wants a deal. You know, what's good for him, what's good for the country is something that makes sense and it probably won't come from 100% of one party making a decision. So he has, he has failed his way to a better negotiating situation, which is not that different from what he talks about all the time about being able to walk away from the table. Right? You're not going to get the good deal unless you can walk away from the table. What about with something like tax reform, which is kind of the next big domestic issue that's going to come up? Tax reform is going to be really tough because the economy is doing well. And when the economy is doing well, it's hard to, to sell somebody on the let's change something important. 
I feel like you're saying a fact, and facts don't matter. <laughs> well, no, that's this is how people feel. If people feel that they're secure and things are going the way they want, they don't want to add risk. All right, and any big change to a tax plan is going to look like introducing risk. So he's got to convince people that this is not risky and you know is just going to work in their favor. And, and you also have the problem that no matter what plan you come up with, the other side is going to say, well, there you go again, screwing the middle class. It wouldn't matter what it was. <laughs> it's always going to look, or at least you can make the case, that the middle class is going to pay. And part of that is because it's going to be complicated stuff. So if they come up with a plan that says, well, we're going to lower your rate, but we're going to take away these deductions, the public is going to say, I don't know what that does to me. I I don't know. You well, know? well, let's say he let let's say he he is focused on just like kind of a a, a tax oriented easing monetary policy. He could say something like, you know, we're booming, and unless you want the shanty towns of nineteen thirties depression, uh, we need to further loosen economic policy, and this is the best way to do it. Let's have less less taxes on the middle class. It's a tough sell when things are going well because mm. you know that that you can do dramatic things when everything's broken and people say, "Well, we've tried everything you now. Let's let's try this new thing." But selling into a stable system that's growing at three percent GDP is the the hardest sale you could ever make. Now they might be able to do it simply by confusing people so that people don't quite know how it's going to work out. But that doesn't seem like good policy to me. Um, my guess is that. Probably both 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 parties need something to happen. So maybe it'll be a little business relief, um, maybe something on the estate tax. But um, I, it would be hard for me to imagine a major change that affected individuals and also made some individuals' taxes go up because necessarily changes do that. Uh, it's hard for me to imagine that will be successful. And then on a foreign policy uh, uh, board, uh, you know, as we've talked about before, Hillary Clinton's persuasion game kind of almost equalized things in the summer when, you know, she was basically saying, do you want Donald Trump's, you know, hands on the nuclear codes? And, you know, she sort of messed up by letting, you know, the, the whole Billy Bush thing kind of take over, which, which was a weaker story in the long run. And, but now here we are in that story. So he's got Rocket Man, you know, a visual description of you know the North Korean leader. Um, but there's real issues here, like something bad can happen. Do you personally get worried about that? Yeah, I mean, I'm. You know, we're sitting here, you know, within the strike range of North Korea, so it would be irrational not to be worried. And I guess it's irrational both ways. But um, this is the first time we've seen something that looked like it could work. In the past, we've seen, hey, let's make some promises that you won't keep. And that, that was the whole game. Let's make some promises, you won't keep them, all right. And then they have more nuclear ability next year. This is the first time that I'm, I'm sure that little Rocket Man is thinking to himself, am I going to be dead in a month? Because I think the president has sold him, and, and Mad Dog Mattis as well, that this time is different. Now, whether or not this time really is different is separate from the fact that um, I think everyone believes it. Right? And when you've got him thinking, I might be dead within the month, like actually, you, you think that Little Rocket Man is probably thinking, 
am I going to be dead in a month? Because if he's not thinking that, he's not watching the news. And that should loosen him up. And the other thing that's uh, loosened him up to negotiate a little bit, now that wouldn't be enough because he has real interests about you know protecting his country and his, his uh, ego and his, his standing in the world and all that. Um, but I think it's the first time that the economic pressure looks like it's to the death, meaning that it doesn't matter how much economic pressure it takes, Trump's just going to keep his foot on the throttle until they're gone. <laughs> so they might have a nuclear weapon and nothing else. You know, I, I think he would. I think he sold them on the fact that he will. You know, he'll just ruin them economically, and and you know they won't. They won't have anything worth winning. Yeah, because if you look at the history of it, you know him, his father, whatever. They keep having this sort of these pseudo threats from North North Korea, and then whether it's W or Obama or everybody backs off. Like on in America, we kind of make a deal, and then we, then there's no more nuclear troubles for a while. And Trump's like not backing off; he's playing the game a little differently than Obama and and W did. Yeah, in the past, we thought, okay, North Korean leader, he's crazy. So if we can get any kind of a deal that looks rational, let's take that deal. Then it just kicks the can. Yeah, and now they're thinking, oh my God, the United States is crazy. You know, we, maybe we should talk because the alternative is not looking so good. So there's no way to predict these things. And uh, if there's a nuclear war, I'm going to say I was so wrong. Um, but I think it's the first time that there's a real opportunity for negotiating. But we're probably not there yet. I think the the economic sledgehammer has to do its work for, I don't know, it might be another nine months. Just a couple more questions. But I, I do want to mid-advertise that this book, Win Bigly, uh, is great not only to understand the election that we just uh, went through, but also uh, I think just personally, this is like a great toolkit to start with to learn how to use per, to, to understand the world around you in terms of persuasion as opposed to facts and rationality. I think that just looking, if all you get out of it is just that, hey, people don't facts don't matter, but persuasion does. I think that's very valuable because then it starts you thinking in a different way. Yeah, I, I tried. My last book was about how to persuade yourself towards success. You know, basically an, an internal persuasion, if you will. And this one's about how to influence other people. So it's a different set of tools. And I, I wrap it in the the election story because everybody's familiar with that. So they have a, a common reference. Makes it fun. So so, but but I'm curious now. Like, let's say let's say Mark Cuban was listening to this and he's thinking of running for president in 2020. What should he start thinking about in terms of his persuasion arsenal? Because he's never been as effective as Donald Trump at this. Yeah, so uh, I heard that he was. He said that if he ran, he would try to run as a Republican, which I hope is just persuasion because Republicans have long memories and uh, his support for Clinton, I think, would doom him on the Republican side. But let's say he ran as a, a Democrat. Um, we already saw some very clever uh, high ground uh, persuasion come out of him in, in a recent interview in which the question was, well, you know, if you, if you do these things for the social programs, how can you possibly pay for it? You know, it's the impossible question. Everybody wants to cut taxes and everybody wants to give everybody great, you know, programs for free, but nobody knows how to pay for it. And he's the first one who said, and this is classic high ground maneuver, that he would use technology to try to lower the cost of these things. You know, he was talking about healthcare in particular, but 
that's the first time you've heard that from a politician. Hmm. And and immediately you go to, well, that actually makes sense. And in fact, I've said it myself, it's the only way you're going to get to a future where we have the stuff we want. You can't get there by taxing. It, the just math will never work. You have to figure out how to live a quality life at a reasonable cost. And we're at a point in, in civilization where technology has that promise. It never did before. I mean, not to the degree it does now. But I think we're at a place where we're probably a few years away from being able to build like a really livable house for $100,000 that just is a great place to live, not just settling for the small house, just way better than even a big house. So um, he could kind of portray himself as kind of this uh, technological savior. And how can he, what's a, what's a good linguistic kill shot on Trump there to say Trump's not that? Well, here we're imagining he's running against Trump, which I think if Trump has a great four years, he'd be t tempted to go out on top. And I would actually probably advise him to, you know, if, if he asked, which he won't. Um, again, all, partly because of age, too. Yeah. Right? You, you don't want to you don't want to gamble on the age thing because if you start losing a step, that's what people are going to remember instead of the the good four years. So I don't think he'll be running against Trump because I think Trump is more likely to do a good four and then out. But um, if he did, Trump has that anti-fragile problem where you can throw anything at him and he just use, he transfers it into energy and, and somehow he comes out ahead. Um, so I think Cuban would have to maybe use his technological advantage um, and say he knows more about technology. Everybody would believe that, like there would be no, no dispute on that question. You could say, um, all right, I'll, I'll give it to him. I'm just kind of thinking on the spot here. You could say, you know, things are going pretty well. Thank you, Donald Trump. But you can't take us to the next level. Hmm. Um, it's not, not quite visual, though. Well, Next level, I guess, is levels. Well, we're, we're just starting here. So, hmm. you know, and then the components can be visual. You could say, for example... Um, you know, we'll have uh, robots building houses. We'll have self-driving cars. So you can just you can describe that world that we're not at, but under his leadership, you could get to. Right. So can he can say all these extreme statements like we're going to have Wi-Fi everywhere, and oh, uh, everywhere everything's going to be shipped to you by drones, and you know. I, if he were running as a Democrat, he could say, "I'm going to give you. You know, we're going to work toward universal health care. We don't know how to get there." That's, that's the problem we have to solve, and technology is how we're going to solve it. And I'm the right guy to do that. Um, we don't know how to give everybody social services. Uh, we don't know how to get everybody a job who needs a job and the training to get a job. But they're all technology fixes. And I could help do that within the, within the constraints of capitalism, right? It's not going to be the government doing things. We just shine a light where it needs to be shined and, and make sure that you know capitalism is doing what it does best. And so... Final question or set of questions. Where do you use these persuasion techniques, let's even say on a daily basis? You described a little bit how you use it with Dilbert, and you've been doing that for years, and you described how it's kind of almost instinctual now, like you're, you talk in a visual language, you're you're always thinking about uh, you know all, all these different aspects. But what are what are concrete ways you can see that it's helped you recently having persuasion techniques? Well, uh, and obviously, your your rise in social media and as a political commentator was was part of that. Yeah, I mean, look how hard it is to change fields. 
uh, and so so dramatically. Right, like we haven't even talked about cartooning. Right. <laughs> um, so the hardest sell is how do you convince somebody that you're not what you've been for you know decades or that you have more to offer. So um, I came in through uh, sort of the side entrance by talking about persuasion. Which and I think is a very good technique. I think people underestimate the back door, the side entrance. So one of the things I learned about the, the media and what makes news and what, what makes people care is they don't really care that you're doing something that people do, but you're doing it really well, right? Unless you're full Tiger Woods or something, right? But if you're just doing what people do really well, there's no news story there. But if you do it a different way, you know, in this case, I'm talking about politics, but I'm talking about persuasion. That was a different way. That's immediately gets people's attention. And they say, oh, a new thing. Finally, there's a new thing. Let's talk about the new thing. And so for you, what was news was that the Dilbert guy is saying Donald Trump's going to win. You made an outlandish statement as I, the Dilbert guy. <laughs> I, I did use the technique of being... Um, wrong in at least the the thing I predicted seemed so wrong to people that it was hard to ignore. Right. And and you used the technique of either way it would win for you because if obviously what happened was Donald Trump won, so now you're world famous political commentator. <laughs> or if Donald Trump had lost, uh you still would have had an outlet to say he's using these persuasion techniques and then he failed in these persuasion levels. You still would have kind of branded yourself somewhat as a persuasion expert. Well, that certainly would have been a far worse outcome because uh, I think I would have been mocked for the rest of my life. Uh, and even though, you know, there are some events that are outside of anybody's control, right? You know, if he, if he had been in a traffic accident or something, he, he could have lost. Um, so yeah, I, I took a pretty big risk there, and um, one but, of the but I feel like you balanced it though. Like you were always able to pull back, like the way your stand, like you know when when the Billy Bush thing happened, and you threw your support to Gary Johnson. You had ways of like pulling back, just the same way Trump pulls back from the outlander statements. Well, yeah, I, I tried to make people understand that it wasn't about the policies because mm -hmm. that that would be the hardest thing to pull back from. Mm -hmm. And I've always been fiercely independent about what makes sense and what doesn't make sense politically. Um, but the, the other thing that I like, and I think we've talked about this in another conversation another day, about how for a writer, what people like is to feel risk. They want to feel danger. Even if it's just, um, oh my God, I can't believe this author said that because when next time he sees his family, they're going to know that he said that in his book. How's that going to be? So if you don't smell some kind of danger in the writing, it just sort of sits there in the page. You, know, you just say, that's interesting. But if you see that the author or somebody that is part of the story is in danger and there's a real risk there, automatically your mind goes to it. You know, we haven't spoken specifically about that, but you spoke about something related to that, which is that uh, a writer should often take both sides of an issue, of a, of a controversial issue. Like, for instance, take um, abortion. And I've, I've done this recently in an article just to try out your idea. If you take both the pro-life side and the pro-choice side, everyone's going to hate you. <laughs> yeah. Because 
they, they how can you either the either the fetus is alive or it isn't. So how can you take both sides of this issue? And um, and there's lots of issues like that. You know, like climate change is another issue like that. Where where and that's where the danger lies, I guess, in the, in those in discussing those taking both sides of those issues. Yeah, some people say that if you can't explain the other side, you don't understand your side. Mm. Yeah, you know, that's sort of a, a baseline to know if you're just talking nonsense. If you if you can't really explain the other person's point of view, you don't really have a point of view that's worth listening to. And so now, finally, I want to ask. So I've been attempting to do stand-up comedy. I go up three to six times a week on a stage, and usually nobody in the audience knows me. Maybe there's fifty to one hundred fifty people in the audience. And the most important skill is not humor. You can have all the funny jokes in the world, but if they don't like you in those first five to 10 seconds, they're not gonna laugh at a single joke no matter how funny it is. So if you were giving advice to me, which I guess is what I'm asking for, what would you do to increase your chances of likability walking up onto a stage in those first five to 10 seconds? I think if you're new, it helps to be as much like them as you can. In other words, I'm uh, never going to look like them. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you probably dress, you know, in a way that they dress. You may be, uh, you know, in their demographic in most cases. Uh, you know, they're people in New York. You know, probably a certain age group. So, so that helps. You don't want to go into a completely hostile audience. Well, well, it's funny when I used to wear just let's say white button-down shirts. Not as good as when I wore a plaid shirt. Because the audience is an everyman. Yeah. And uh, when I used to do a lot of essentially stand-up comedy, but it was you know talking about Dilbert for big corporate groups, uh, none of which I do now that I've talked about Trump. I, I lost all of that business. Um, but one of the things I would do is I would dress poorly. Uh, now, I've never, I've never been you know one who could dress well. But I would actually go out of my way to make sure that I was one of the more poorly dressed people at the event. <laughs> and part of that was that it matched what people thought of uh, me through my character, Dilbert, who would be a poorly dressed person too. So it, it it was kind of a, it all fit in their minds. It's like, oh, poorly dressed, he's got a comic that's poorly dressed. They're already primed by, by just being poorly dressed. Um, but that's you know sort of a, a special case. So I think that how you dress has to do with the audience and the situation and stuff, but... Uh, be, being less formal than they are is probably good when you're new. Later, you can be Jerry Seinfeld and put on the tuxedo, and people say, "Well, of course he's in a tuxedo. That's Jerry Seinfeld." <laughs> so you know, you could get there someday. And so, so okay, p- poorly dressed. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> pushing for more. <laughs> well, um, your first, your first few things that you say are going to really control the audience. So um, you notice that people usually start with just some connection. Yeah, like where are you from, or or they do self-deprecation. Well, they look at the audience mm-hmm. and they they actually make eye contact with the audience, and they're trying to, you know, they might say something about you know some little uh, non-joke about themselves or the situation or what's happening or where you're all that you're all together here. So there's a little bit of bonding going on. Yeah, a little tribe building. Tribe building. Um, yeah, stand-up comedy is not my field, so I would say, uh, even though I've done it, uh, but I did it in a special context. It was easy for me because I was just talking about Dilbert and people were primed to like that. Um, you know, I suppose the reason that so few people can do that, be a, a good stand-up, is that there's, I think there's, 
there's something in people. Like I think there are some people that you could give the best jokes in the world, and the moment you saw them, you you couldn't laugh. Huh. Like there are some people who are just serious looking, and you know you you've got you've got a unique look, right? You've got the you know the the hair is not like other people's hair, and blah blah. blah. So that fits perfectly into that comedy world. You know, the the number of comedians who have unusual hair is, is probably pretty big. <laughs> No, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what I do, and I wonder if it fits into any of the persuasion stuff. What what I'll do when I get on the stage? I've been doing this lately. I've been experimenting with it. I may not do it for that much longer, but I'll go up. I'll just look at the audience. I'll usually be wearing a jacket. I'll take off my jacket. I'll put it down. I'll put water on the floor. I'll on my shirt. I'll say uh, I won't be saying anything, but I'll have like a t-shirt underneath. I'll take the water up. I'm not still not saying anything. I'll drink water, just look around at the audience. So now it's like 20 seconds in. And then I'll say something like, uh, what, you don't take your time when you get to work? And uh, you know, you don't take your time settling in when you get to work? And usually by then, if they laugh, I know I've controlled the stage and the situation. Yeah, being being silent for as long as you are is pretty powerful. As long as you know you you, you don't have silence later. But if it's you know a focus point, that's pretty powerful. I would say you want to look for your example is perfect because even as you're talking, I was trying to think of an example, and you you gave me one. Your very first thing you said was, "I'm like you." You know, yeah. You you take your time to get ready in the audience. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you could go up there and say, "Well, I just need my cup of coffee, and I'll be in the men's room for ten minutes, and you know, I'll, I'll be out to start my day." Actually, that would be a perfect starting joke. Would be um, everybody has some if they work in an office, they know that person who spends way too much time in the bathroom, yeah, and and they're counting that as their their time on the clock. <laughs> uh, so a joke like that, you know, at your own expense, people would say, "Ah, I know that guy," and then you're you're right with them. I'll tell you the one time the silence trick didn't work is when I when usually I won't go to the microphone until after I've said that first line. But one time I went to the microphone first and then said that first line, and then it didn't work at all. Oh because, yeah, because the microphone maybe made me above them instead of with them. But you also surprised them by showing that all that stuff they thought was not part of the act was actually part of the act. Ah, and then and then they had to reconstruct it. So one of the one of the things uh, that makes a joke really work is if somebody has to work to to construct it in their heads. You give them you give them almost enough, but they they put the parts together themselves. That's that's what people really get triggered by. Well, Scott Adams, uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. So first we, third time on the podcast, first time in person. I hope we get a chance to do it again. And I really think everybody should read Win Bigly. Persuasion in a world where facts don't matter. This is this is not just a, only about the election. I think this is going to make my life better reading this book. So I've got all sorts of stuff like underlined and marked. Oh, it actually just reminded me. Why? So I bookmarked this. Why is "turn the other cheek" one of the most persuasive four words ever? <laughs> well, <clears throat> and this I promise this will be the last. Question. <laughs> so uh, I believe the original context was instead of fighting people, use persuasion. I mean, because turning the other cheek was, um, it, there's actually more of a historical context. It meant something in the actual biblical sense. But it was, it was a move from um, either being a victim or fighting back physically. It was the third way. And the third way was persuasion. By turning the other cheek, 
they went to the high ground, they became another person. It was unexpected. It was persuasion. Huh. All right. Well, thanks, Scott. Win bigly. Thanks. Thank you. Hey, 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 hold on. Before you go, don't forget I'm giving out for free whatever copies I have left of the Side Hustle Bible. Again, I'm not publishing this on Amazon. I'm just giving it to you guys, uh, podcast listeners, newsletter subscribers, and the people who have already been interested in my writing because I know you'll appreciate it. I know we're all interested in freedom and choosing ourselves, and I've put together this collection of 177 proven ideas that I know work. I mean, wait till you see the testimonial from the guy who wrote the forward. It's, uh, it blew my mind when he wrote it. So if you've ever wondered what life would be like if you were able to make money while you slept or while you were spending time with your family or what it would be like to turn something you love into a new income stream or even find out what you love that you could monetize, you need this book because I wrote it for you. You can get it right now at jamesfreebooks.com. That's jamesfreebooks.com to claim your free copy of the Side Hustle Bible. Do it now. It's jamesfreebooks.com.